Uh, if you're uh, new to Christ Bible Church, my name is Randy. I'm one of the pastors here. And we will be uh, diving into uh, the book of Ephesians as we get ever closer to the finale here and, and, and finishing all that God has to tell us in this book. Uh, this morning, we will be looking at verses 5 through 9 in chapter 6. So chapter 6, verses 5 uh, through 9. Uh, a section that uh, is short but says a lot to us about uh, work and our labors and how we treat people, um, and I think a very rich text for us. And so let us uh, dive into God's Word together this morning uh, as we hear what the Lord has to say to us in the book of Ephesians, starting at verse 5 in chapter 6. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or is free. Masters, do the same to them, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word, for your reminder of, of what it means to work not for man, but unto the Lord, for what it means to have authority over other people, not with threatening, but with value and care for the souls and lives of others. And so as we look at this text this morning, Lord, as, as we seek to understand it and apply it to our lives, we pray that you would give us clarity. Give us clarity about how to live our lives in light of your uh, revealed will for us here in verses 5 through 9. Let us be able to defend our faith and to uh, show a watching world what it means uh, to work and love the Lord. We ask that you would do this the power of the Holy Spirit molding our hearts and minds to be like you this morning. Amen. Before we dive into the text uh, and look through and apply verses 5 through 9, we have to first deal with the elephant in the room. Now, if you have the ESV, you may not have noticed this elephant. Uh, why? Because the, verse, the very first word here in chapter 5, the ESV brings out as bondservant. Back in 2001, when they were creating this text and, and doing all the translation work from Greek and Hebrew to bring in the ESV, they decided to use the word bondservant. But if you have almost any other translation, it's not bondservant. The word is slave. And so many of you may have a different uh, text with you today, or you've heard this in other forms and say, okay, like before we can ask the question of, what does this text mean for me? People get distracted and immediately read this and say, what is the Bible saying about the legitimacy or illegitimacy of slavery? Does the Bible really condone and approve of slavery? And so it's difficult for us to jump to where we need to go, which is what is this saying to us? How does this affect our lives before we first answer this whole slavery thing here in verses 5 
through 9. And, and to do that, we're not going to spend a lot of time here this morning, but I do want to make a couple careful observations about why I don't think uh, it's really appropriate to use this to defend slavery or to spend too much time talking about the legitimacy of slavery here in verses 5 through 9. First is this, in the uh, first century in the Roman world, slavery was much different than the transatlantic slave trade of the 16th to the 19th century that when we hear the word slave, we immediately go to as Americans. This is why the ESV chose the word bondservant because it better represents what the author is trying to convey. And so when Paul uses the Greek word that is literally translated slave, a slave in Paul's day isn't quite the same as a slave in the American context that we have. So the ESV chooses bondservant because there is a difference in what slavery looked like in the first century in the Roman world and when we hear the word slavery here in uh, the 21st century in America. And so it's important to understand how different this was. In Paul's world, one commentator uh, brings it out this way, slavery was a widespread phenomenon meaning it's everywhere. It wasn't localized to a few countries or few locations. The whole world had slavery. One could become a slave because of economic misfortune, meaning they ran out of money, they owed a debt, and now they have to become a slave in order to pay that off. Or they could be captured in war, there was kidnapping, or they could simply have been born into slavery. Within a household, work was divided according to gender rather than status as free or slave. Therefore, slaves and free members of a household would work side by side. In urban contexts, cities, slaves could become doctors, they could become tutors, they would handle the money and the financial affairs of households, they could earn money and sometimes purchase their freedom. They could marry, and female slaves would often be freed in order to marry their masters. It's much different than the slavery in the American context when we think of and hear the word slavery. Now, this shouldn't dole the fact that slavery is bad and should be condemned outright, right? There's no grounds for owning another person, but we must still say that although it was a brutal practice, it is different than the 16th to 18th century in America when we hear the word slave. The second thing I want to note is that in the text here, Paul is not seeking to discuss the legitimacy of slavery. The point of verses 5 through 9 is not is it good to have a slave? It's how do you live as somebody in a certain social structure? To say that Paul doesn't condemn slavery here must mean that he supports it as a good and godly course of action would be false. It's a bad reading of the text. Now, this doesn't mean people haven't done that over the years and have tried to use things like this to defend the practice of slavery, but that's not what Paul is trying to talk about. And in fact, I believe if we look at Paul's words here and apply them, it would become apparent that slavery, as in the American context, where we have uh, people that are viewed not as people but as property, uh, would be viewed as totally illegitimate. It's an attitude that Paul has no patience for. Slaves, as Paul writes here, have value, equal standing, are in fact called brothers and sisters. Paul has no patience for the type of slavery uh, that we think of in the American context where people are property. And so when reading this and seeing that Paul is addressing slaves here, we should pause and say, no, Paul's not condoning slavery. He's actually uplifting these people. When Paul refers to them and we have 
a written word in Scripture to these people who are slaves, Paul is saying, you that are in the church in Ephesus, who are slaves, are worth addressing. You have value. You are a person. You have indeed full membership of the church. You're not viewed as less than your masters, but indeed equal. And by extension of church membership, you are brothers and sisters with your masters. You're not pieces of property, but you have equal standing and equal value to each other and to God. And finally, we should wrestle with this question of slavery here by seeing that if Paul's advice to believing slave masters is actually followed and lived out, it would undermine the entire system of slaveholding. What does Paul tell the masters? Uh, To stop with violence, to stop with threats. Furthermore, if we zoom out to the book of Ephesians as a whole, what has Paul said? If you go all the way back to chapter 5, verse 21, where he calls the church to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, what he is saying is, masters, you have a slave, but in the church and under Christ, you are equal, and not just equal, masters are called to submit to their slaves out of reverence for Christ. The system of slavery held together by threats of violence and abuse cannot exist if these principles are followed. For this reason, I don't see it as legitimate that any person can take a text like this that talks about slavery and the existence of slavery in the Bible and then use it to defend the practice of slavery. Further, I also cannot accept that because Paul does not make any mention of the morality of this here, that it's legitimate to criticize Christianity as a uh, religion that uh, follows slavery and supports slavery. That's not what's being discussed here. Paul is simply concerned, as we turn our attention now to the text, not about making a defense or an attack on the institution of slavery, but Paul is concerned about dealing with people who are in the church as they find themselves at that exact moment of history. This is a church full of people from diverse backgrounds, whether it's ethnically, culturally, or even socially. And Paul wants to help them learn how to live in the new reality that they are fellow heirs, equal in Christ, and called to live with the new life and in the likeness of God, regardless of their situation. What Paul has been answering throughout all of these household codes the last few weeks as we've been going through Ephesians is what does it look like to imitate God, to put on the new self, regardless of where these early Christians find themselves? What does it look like to be a renewed person and live that out as a wife, as a husband, as a child, as a father, and now as a servant and as a master? How do we honor God and live in holiness in the current place that God has has them? This is what Paul is addressing. He's not supporting slavery by saying that it exists. He's saying even in these cases, you can still honor God and live for God. So let's look at this text and begin to apply it to our lives. I'm going to read it again as we try to refocus ourselves here this morning. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does... 
This he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. What do we see in every single verse? Jesus. Verse 5. Obey your masters as you would Christ. Verse 6, as bondservants of Christ doing the will of God. Verse 7, rendering service to the Lord. Verse 8, knowing you will receive back from the Lord. Verse 9, he who is both their master and yours, referring to the Lord, to Jesus. What's the point? What's the focus of this passage? Not slavery, it's Jesus. The question we should ask ourselves as we read this is, how can I serve Jesus in my current situation? What does it mean to honor God and to imitate Christ as both a servant and as a master? And it seems as I read this, the issue from the perspective of both the servant and the master is the same. It's a loss of focus. It's a life lived where it's not about Christ, but about oneself. It's seeking to glorify yourself, to elevate yourself, to gain more for yourself. But these people, these early Christians, were called to something different, something more. Verse 23 of chapter 4, they're called to put on the new self. Chapter 5, verse 1, they're called to be imitators of God. And so in the new life, as imitators of God, it should not be about self-promotion, self-gain, Being an employee or being a boss, the focus of our work is Christ, honoring him and imitating him. And I think in order to apply this and rightly understand us, we have to ask two questions then this morning. How do we imitate Christ as the slave or the servant? And how do we imitate Christ as the master? Some of us struggle with this passage because we think, I'm not a slave, I have no owner, this doesn't apply to me. Or... I don't own any slaves. This doesn't apply to me. I'm glad that you don't own slaves. Take a deep breath that I'll support you on that one. right? But in all of these household codes, Paul is seeking to help us understand the ordering of relationships and how people might emulate Christ, whether they're in positions of submission or in positions of authority. And so while there's not a single person in here that is indeed a slave or is a master, we should still seek to answer these questions to see Christ and how his character comes out as a servant or his character comes out as a master and apply it to our lives. The reality is all of us in here have people that have authority over us, right? We all have people who tell us what to do in some capacity. This section on slaves and masters can readily be applied even to the two different household codes Paul's talked about with kids and parents or wives and husbands. But in a modern context, we could say employees and employers, or players and coaches, or homeowners and the HOA organizations, right? I won't comment on their standing, Uh, right? But there's people who tell you what to do, what color your house can be even. The point that Paul is trying to get about is what we do when nobody is watching matters. If we're selfish, then when there's nothing to be gained, we simply don't do the work. But if we seek to imitate Christ, the way we work will change. And so we must take a moment 
to step back and to see Christ as the servant and as the master and have a deep desire to imitate him. And when we do that, selfishness will quickly erode. Why? Because Christ lived the most selfish and servant-led life you could possibly imagine. Philippians tells it this way, verse, uh, chapter 2, verses 4 to 8. Look not, uh, for, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Having this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now it's going to tell us what this Christ Jesus looks like as a servant and as a master. Verse 6, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You want to be a servant like Jesus? You want to be a master like Jesus? This is what you do. And so we must take another step back and say, okay, what are the implications of this? If we are to live like this, to be a servant like Jesus, how does that change our lives? Well, first, looking at the servant thing. Three ways I think imitating Christ the servant or the slave changes our work or the way that we live. First, imitating Christ the servant means we respect those who are in authority over us. Going back to Ephesians, right, verse 5, how are these bond servants to obey their masters with fear and trembling? And you say, Randy, didn't you just say that masters aren't supposed to leave with threats and be jerks and mean? Isn't that the call? Why would a servant have to have fear and trembling? Well, this is a misunderstanding of what fear and trembling is. This is not fear and trembling as in I'm afraid something bad's going to happen to me. Fear and trembling is actually a sign of respect. And so when he's saying, servants, obey your masters with fear and trembling, he is saying, have respect for those who are in authority over you. It describes the proper mood and disposition of a person who is a subordinate should display to that that is their superior a willingness to recognize their authority, to honor them. If we imitate Christ, it changes the way that we look at people who are in authority over us. We are commanded to have respect for them, to recognize their authority, even if we don't often like it. And certainly we can apply that uh, often to those that are in our government. We are called to respect our new governor. We don't like it, right? Some of us, most of us probably but the reality is, we are called to have respect. They have authority over us. And so we're not called to talk bad about them, to trash them, but to respect them. If we're going to imitate Christ as a servant, we have to respect those who are in authority over us. That's the command. Number two, imitating Christ as the servant means we work without the expectation of reward. This is hard and it's very unnatural for us. Right? As a very young age, you are taught reward systems in America. We're capitalists, and it's a good thing. Right? I think the Bible supports capitalism. Right? You work, and you get what you deserve. You work, and you get what you deserve. If you don't work, you get what you deserve, which is hunger and famine and probably not a house. Right? But as young kids, we're taught this. You want something from mom and dad. You want a new toy. You want some candy. What do you have to do? You have to go earn it. You have to do something. Do some chores, right? You do something, you're rewarded. You do something, you're rewarded. This is supported in scripture. 
But the difficulty becomes that because we often drift into, I worked hard, therefore I deserve something. We don't always see our own value the same as other people, right? I don't value my kid's job cleaning their room the same way they value their job cleaning their room, right? Quite frankly, it's because they didn't really clean their room. Uh, but they think they did, right? And so they think they deserve something now, and I think they deserve something entirely different than what they think they deserve, right? What is the problem with this? If we're not careful, because we have this idea that I, I, I did something, therefore I deserve something, we become resentful when other people don't value our work or our contributions the way that we think we should, that we don't get the respect that we think we deserve. And this isn't just in the workplace. This happens in the house, right? With kids and parents, with husbands and wives. My spouse just doesn't value the way that I clean the house all day today, right? They came home and Randy marched right through there with his muddy shoes again, right? Doesn't he know that I spent two hours mopping? You know, doesn't he care about me, right? These are things that I've been accused of, right? I, I share it so you don't have to live these things in your own life. Uh, but we struggle with this because we think I deserve respect. I deserve, I demand these things. But imitating Christ as the servant means we work without the expectation of reward. We work without the expectation of respect or acknowledgement even. If we are to imitate Jesus, we have to be willing to forsake all of our rights and become people who, not look, who look not for the interest of ourselves, but for the interest of others. And we do this by making our lives about Christ and not ourselves. By laying down our rights, by letting go of the, of the rewards or the demands that we think people owe us, and instead continually putting them before us, even if we struggle with that. God did not come into the world uh, and demand that the world shape up before he sent his son. He sent Jesus while we were still sinners. We should have that same attitude about working. Think about the scene in John 13. John 13 is one of my favorite scenes about thinking, how can you serve people? Uh, if you're not familiar with John 13, this is the story of Jesus washing the disciples' feet. He shows up in the upper room. He's, they've been traveling, uh, and they're getting ready to have uh, their last meal together. Jesus, weary from walking out, uh, from just working, from being, having people reach out and touch him, just the pressure of life even that Jesus sees as he knows he's hours away from being betrayed, uh, soon will be arrested, publicly humiliated, beaten, and eventually killed, all within a few days' span of time. Jesus walks into this room for dinner, exhausted from the weight of everything that has happened and will happen from just physical exhaustion, from traveling. What does he do? He grabs the water basin, he grabs a towel, and he starts scrubbing dirty, nasty feet. Feet are some of the most disgusting things on earth, right? And that's why this story resonates so well with me. The, the position of foot washer was like you were at the bottom. And yet here is the creator of the world, the master of masters, the ruler of rulers, and what is he doing? He's scrubbing dusty, muddy feet of his disciples. What does he gain for himself by washing feet? Absolutely nothing. But what is he doing? He is setting the tone for what it means to selflessly serve, to give of yourself 
and not demand anything in return. Jesus knows he's about to give so much more than just a nice foot scrub, some exfoliation and get the calluses off of these disciples' feet. He's about to give his life. And the expectation Jesus is setting for his disciples in that room and for us today is that if you want to follow me, if you want to imitate me as a servant, you have to be willing to give up everything. You have to be willing to serve, even in the lowest ways. Finally, number three, if we are going to imitate Christ, this means our work is ultimately a service to Christ. Our primary motivation for work should never be to earn favor for ourselves or earn a reward from somebody else. It should be to serve Jesus. Paul tells us that, when, that, that we should work not unto man, but unto God here, rendering service to Christ, doing the will from the heart, not to man. And when we think of Jesus as the servant and we seek to emulate him, our motivation for work should change as well. It should lead us to become people who, not, who don't work for earthly things, but for God. Paul says it very simply, don't be a people pleaser. Don't work just because somebody that's above you is going to reward you. Somebody's going to give you an attaboy or a raise or a promotion, or your spouse is going to tell you thanks for all the hard work that you've done. No, work because God has saved you, because Christ is your master. Work for him regardless of the rewards you get. It changes the way that we work. John Stott says it this way, I think helpfully in his commentary. It's possible for the housewife to cook a meal as if to Jesus Christ was going to eat it, or to spring clean the house as if Jesus Christ were to be the honored guest. It's possible for teachers to educate children, for doctors to treat patients and nurses to care for them, for solicitors to help clients, shop assistants to serve customers, accountants to audit books, and secretaries to type letters in each case as they were serving Jesus Christ. We could go on and add hundreds of categories to that list, but the point is that we are to work for Jesus. We work hard and seek to do a good job, not because we might receive a reward or praise, but because we want to honor God. And so we ask ourselves, what does our work actually say? Is our work full of grumbling, complaining? Is it full of idleness? Are you giving your full effort? Or when your boss isn't around or you have a moment, are you cruising social media for hours on end? right, in some vortex of emptiness, right? And the boss isn't going to see. He doesn't know. And it doesn't really affect my job. No. But should I be doing this? What does my work say? If our work is for Christ, then we should work as hard as we can, even if we know our boss won't care or our spouse won't notice. We give our best because Christ gave his life. Further, I believe we should see good work as a type of evangelism. When coworkers, spouses, children see us work hard and not cut corners, knowing that there's nothing to be gained from the extra work, it speaks to them. It speaks to them because we say, we are doing something even if I don't get a reward. Why? Because I have a God who's done great things for me. Our work can be a reflection of Jesus to those who see it. But there's a temptation to cut corners. Don't believe me? Think back through gym class. Maybe you guys didn't have a gym class like me. Right? My gym class usually started with a, a light 
run around the track. One or two laps, which is 400 or 800 yards, right around Sunrise Mountain uh, track over here. Uh, and what would happen? The coach would yell out, whatever, you know, two laps, one lap. Everybody had to hit the pavement and start running. And inevitably, there was like those three or four guys who just, you know, 7.20 in the morning was the first period, and they're running full blast. Everybody else is still waking up, and they're halfway around the track before you're even out the door, right? But you were actually secretly thankful for these guys because the majority of us did one thing. If it was a two-lap day, you let those guys just run as fast as they wanted. Why? Because if you got out into the track before they finished their first lap, as soon as they passed you, you could give a fake hustle and act really tired when you came around the finish line for your first lap and pretend that you just did two laps. The coach isn't really paying attention. He's going to give you full participation grades. All right, you finished this, this task. We know these guys did it. If they're as tired as him, they must have been keeping up today. You cut half a lap off of it. Or if it was a one-lap day, you did my favorite thing. I shouldn't say my favorite. I, don't, I have no comments on what I did or didn't do. All right? There's a nice curve at the end of a track, if you know what uh, the, the oval shape of track and field tracks. And so when you finish the nice straightaway, what do you do? You hang a hard left, 90 degree turn. And you have, it was an art to see how do you, what speed do I need to make it look like I'm actually doing the full distance here. So when the coach looks out and he sees us on the far side of the track, it looks like we're going all the way around the curve when really I just cut you know, a big portion of the run off. Why do I share these silly stories? Because often in life, this kind of attitude is not something that we even uh, struggle with. It's something we are praised for. There is a temptation in life not just to cut corners, but to see cutting corners as a virtue. This guy did the bare minimum and still got everything he needed. Wouldn't it be so nice if I didn't have to spend all of this time and I got the same reward? It's efficiency. No, it's cutting corners, and it's not the work ethic that Christ asks us to emulate. As the suffering servant, Jesus humbled himself, and he died for sinners. He took the form of a slave. He left glory to seek and save the lost. He came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom. He didn't cut corners. He didn't only work when it benefited himself. No Jesus gave himself continually as a way of obeying and honoring the Father. His work was a ministry, showing that just as he was willing to give of himself for other people through service, he would ultimately give of his life for their salvation. His life was to be a demonstration of what it would look like to become someone who honors God with their labors. This is what our work should look like as well. Because the reality is, no work is merely work. It's a way to serve Christ. And if these principles are applied in a sometimes awful working environment in the first century of household slaves, how much easier should it be for us to live them out in the better conditions that we have today? Some of you in here say, my job stinks. It probably does. Some of you say, my boss is a jerk. They probably are. But the reality is, your boss is ultimately Jesus, and your job is to serve him. So work like that's the truth. And remember, Jesus knows if you cut the corner on the track. But to question two, how do you imitate Christ as the master? What does this change about your life if you are somebody who has authority over other 
people. Well, first and foremost, imitating Christ as a master would cause us and should cause us to treat those who are under our authority differently. It would not have been uncommon in the first century when this is written to threaten a slave with a beating or separation from their family if they were non-compliant. If they weren't achieving what you needed to achieve, if they weren't obeying the way that you wanted them to obey, you could threaten them in such a way. Indeed, the most powerful way to keep people in line is through fear. And so masters would frequently bring threats on their slaves in order to accomplish the master's agenda. We learn early in our own lives, fear is a powerful motivator, right? Over and over again, you've heard the phrase, you better do this or else, right? You've heard it from teachers. If you're a parent, you've uttered it towards your kids, I'm sure. Uh, If you're a boss, you've said this. If you're a spouse, you've probably already said this. It's probably some of the most common words we've ever heard. You better do this or else. What is this? This is fear. If you don't do this, I'm bringing destruction on you. If you don't shape up, if you don't knock this off, something is coming. This is a threat, and it's very effective. What's the quickest way to get your kid to clean their room? to teach them how important it is to be organized and to value a structure in the home? Or is it to say, get in there, clean your room, dad's going to be home in 10 minutes, right? And then they're like off running, right? What, what, what's the fastest way to get things done? It's often fear. Fear motivates people, motivates you to work hard in school. If you don't do this homework, you're going to fail. There is fear, 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 fear. But if you were here last week, you'll remember that we discussed the goal, if you're a parent or somebody in authority, should never just be results. Yes, fear might get your kids to clean their room. Fear might get your employees to get the job done. But it hasn't changed the inner motivation. And if you are somebody who is a person of authority over those that are underneath you, your high calling is to help people to change their motivation to see that there is more to life than the results that are at play. Somebody who is a person of authority should help change the motivation of others because of their status as a Christian. So the person that has authority has a different motivation themselves and can pass that on to other people. When a leader leads well, what do they do? They lead the people that they have authority over to see that there's more to life than just their failures or their successes. If you have authority, if you are somebody who has employees or you have somebody that answers to you in some way, your high calling is to help these people realize that there's more to life than just finishing whatever task is at hand. And so therefore, Paul commands these people in the first century, in the early church who are masters, to stop with the threats. Because when a master stops ruling with fear and instead rules with grace, he's able to demonstrate Christ to those he has authority over. The master helps to paint the picture of Jesus in a life bigger than the present one to those they have authority over. The master ultimately understands that the way that Christ has dealt with the master's own failures, the master can now imitate that to those that are under them when they also inevitably fail. We imitate Christ's as a master, by being somebody who leads sacrificially for those who God has placed under our authority, by not using threats to achieve results, but instead being patient and gracious, to lead in a way that people will want to follow you, not be forced into doing it. 
It's leading without manipulation. It's leading like a servant. Christ, creator of the universe, master of masters, rulers of all, became a servant so that those who he ultimately ruled over could be saved. Jesus came and conquered, not with threats of violence, but by sacrifice. We should live and lead in the same way if we are people of authority. Now, this doesn't mean that if you're uh, somebody here today that has authority, you let everything slide. Jesus forgave my sins. I will forgive everybody else's sins and not hold them accountable. That's not what Jesus does, and it's not what we are called to do. But it does mean that as a boss, we can be somebody who emulates the patience, the grace, the kindness, and the sacrificial service of Christ to our employees so that we can call them to something bigger, so that we can show them Christ. What does this mean? It means to be a boss who isn't a tyrant, always demanding more and squeezing employees to get every last drop out of them. It means being somebody who serves those that are underneath them, being a shepherd rather than a dictator. And it means to care for employees or other people's well-being rather than your own, uh, just, just because they're valuable. It means seeing these people as having value, not just resources to deplete in order to accomplish your goals. If you are going to imitate Christ as a leader, as somebody with authority, it's going to change the way you treat those that are underneath you. And second and finally, imitating Christ as a master causes us to see the people we are in authority over differently. Paul's words to the masters here in verse 9 of chapter 6 is a powerful reminder that just because we are in a different role or class than other people doesn't make us better than them. Paul's reminder is that we are all under the rule of Christ and therefore we are all equally accountable to him, regardless of social standing or position within a company. The calling is to not be somebody who looks down on those you have authority over, but instead builds those underneath you up. We are all equal in Christ. So treat people like it. A few last questions for personal heart evaluation I want to leave us with. Number one, what does your work ethic say? Are you somebody who works hard even if you know it will be no benefit to you? Or are you someone who is constantly trying to game the system to put forth the least amount of work possible and avoid repercussions? What does your work ethic say about what you believe about Jesus. Number two, what do your actions say about those you are in authority over? Do you provide the bare minimum for the people you oversee, or do you seek to bless them? How could you, as somebody in authority, imitate Christ in the way that you oversee them? Number three, this is a good one. Do you pray before you go to work? The only way you can serve like Jesus, the only way you can lead like Jesus is to be filled with Jesus. So do you pray for the Spirit to fill you up, that God might use you as a missionary where you work? If you don't, you should. And finally, what is your relationship with Christ? What matters most according to this text? It's your relationship with with Jesus. The most important thing in this life is not where you work or what position you have at your work. What matters is how you respond to Jesus. Is he your master?
If you do not have Christ, then you need to receive the one who, though being the ultimate master, became the ultimate servant, dying for sinners like us. Jesus came to do for us what we could not do for ourselves, to free us from slavery to sin and to bring us into loving relationship with the Father. He came to give us what we could not earn, spiritual life. He came to make us what we could not become, no longer slaves, but sons. He is the obedient servant, the best master, and the sovereign Lord. Look to him and live. Let's pray. Father, we do look to you and seek to emulate you. Father, we thank you for Jesus, who though being in the form of God, came down and humbled himself in order to serve, to live so sacrificially that he was willing to give even his own life for us. Father, let us serve those that are around us with the same attitude and heart. Let us not get wrapped up in the things that we think we deserve, the demands of this life, our own pursuit of vanity, of respect, of resources, but instead serve like Christ, being willing to pick up the towel and wash even dirty feet. Father, help us as we leave today to lead like Christ, to be people who use the authority that you've given to us not to harm others, not to push our own selfish gain and to accomplish things, but Lord, in order to push people towards you, to be a reflection of the way that you have saved us and in doing so demonstrate grace and salvation to those that are around us. Lord, help us to be people who lead, who care, and who share the hope of Christ with those that we have authority over. We ask that you would do this According to Jesus, through the power of your spirit, we know that we're powerless to accomplish these things on our own. We're prone to weakness. We're prone to selfishness. We're prone to cut the corners on the track. Lord, we are prone to do the least amount possible. And yet we ask that you would be working in our hearts and our minds to make us people who honor you and to emulate you and to show the world just how good of a Savior you are. Amen.